the Community Alliance with Family Farmers presents the Farmer's Beat podcast. That's B-E-E-T. Hello, my name is Amber, and I work for the Community Alliance with Family Farmers, also known as CAF. I'm the host of Season 3, where we hear directly from family-scale farmers throughout California, getting the real information and stories behind the food we grow and eat. In this series, we're highlighting the innovative work farmers are doing to keep their farms safe from wildfire and share methods for recovery. In this episode, we're in Nevada County visiting First Rain Farm, located in the Rock Creek watershed just north of town. This unique small farm and ranch offers a wealth of value to the surrounding community in some surprising ways. Join us as we learn from the lead land steward implementing important changes in the region. My name is Tim Van Wagner. I'm 37, born and raised in Nevada County. And we're at First Rain Farm, my farm with my wife, Kat, and my son, Teague, and our little daughter, Rose. We're at 2,500 feet, the foothills of the Sierra Nevada. We're kind of a mixed conifer, interspersed with the oaks, a lot of cedar trees, firs. We've got white alders, sugar pines. We grow awesome trees here. And we're actually at this interesting confluence of several drainages um, and just kind of coming to understand those as their natural forms. I've always just felt a real connection to the land growing up here and then went to college down in Southern California um, where I kind of got into environmental studies. Uh, and got my hands in the dirt, literally, down there at student gardens and things like that. And some of my early exposure was like John Jevons, which I would, in a lot of ways, say that it really informed a lot of my future farming um, because of the kind of complete picture he was taking, like, how do you grow all your own food? Um, and I think that for me, I really appreciated that approach because it takes into account fertility, like how do you grow enough carbon to make compost. But I think that my venture into farming expanded because I was really interested in animals. Personally, I was kind of coming from the nourishing traditions, kind of nutrient-dense animal foods as being really important. And at the same time, kind of in line with the like biodynamic type thing where revolving around the, the cow and the ruminant as kind of the central pillar of fertility and the surrounding land and creating this really kind of concentrated magic through compost. Ruminants are hooved mammals that have a unique digestive system that allows them to efficiently use energy from fibrous plant material, and their manure helps feed soil life. We are certified organic, but for me it's always been a lot more about like the fertility loop being where I am and utilizing the resources around me, the local food system, how my specific farm might fit into that, and then more recently, expanding the perspective kind of beyond just our fields and looking at the surrounding land, the forests, and um, you know, just the role that, that plays in the greater ecosystem of where we live. When I first started farming, it was really just very small scale and kind of had this vision of creating this network of farms that were kind of working together and it was really a great opportunity to learn about setting up a farm infrastructure wise working with other people how organizations function um, and ultimately marketing as well um, 
because we did have to run a business <laughs> and pay the bills, although there weren't that many back then. <laughs> the good old days. We have been doing farmer's market and grocery stores, our local co-op, and a handful of restaurants for years, 12 years. Um, so it helped us to keep our diversity of crops within reasonable limits. Um, and it also kind of built in some resiliency, actually, into the models. I mean, things happen even to seasoned farmers. Um, at the same time, I've been developing these land management services. For 10 years, Tim had a Nubian goat milk herd. Due to increased demands for Tim's land management services, he started a new grazing herd from the original group to support expanded community grazing efforts. I think that I'm getting the opportunity to actually talk to a lot of people about the ecology here, which is neat because I'm out on all these parcels with the goats and doing these burning jobs and really talking with landowners. And it ultimately comes down to just this word, a brittle environment. Essentially, it, it, what it means is that there's, we're, when we have warm temperatures, we're dry. And when we're wet, we're cold. And so that basically relates to decomposition. So when you have high temps and low moisture, decomposition comes to a halt. When you have moisture but cold, decomposition comes to a halt. So in our climate, we have a very narrow window of opportunity for decomposition. So every year, the leaves, the pine needles, dead branches, dead trees, they fall down um, and they accumulate because there's just not the decomposition. And so because of exclusion of the fire and the suppression of it, that accumulation has been rampant. It has a huge amount of repercussions as well for the greater ecosystem. It's not just that it represents fuel. It literally is a buildup of nutrients that's locked into this dead matter that's no longer available for other living plants and um, organisms in the soil. It's a mulch on top of the soil, which suppresses all of the annual perennial herbaceous species. It's a huge interceptor for moisture. In these years of few and far between large rainstorms, it's really hard to saturate that mulch on the soil and then also to get a storm that can penetrate it and go into the soil. So all that mulch is, is highly aerated. So all that air takes the moisture away back into the air. So it's not feeding the aquifers ultimately and the springs. Um, meanwhile, every tree is a straw that's sucking moisture out of the ground. And because of the suppression of the fire, these trees exist because they're not getting thinned out by the fire. So this many trees closes the canopy. So now there's no sunlight hitting an understory, which would be the highest diversity and the most food for wildlife and livestock as well. Over the past two centuries, the landscape management regimes of this area have fluctuated immensely. When grazing animals were largely removed after World War II, a lot of invasive plant species began to dominate. So when we got the property in 2011, it was kind of this gem in the rough. And so here we are 10 years on, and the idea of restoration is such a process. Um, and so for me, it's been a real learning curve of 
coming to understand this land, how to manage it, and what its potentials are. And now, especially with the fire, being this kind of renewing force for the land and really the indispensable tool. So in this past year, as we got into more prescribed burning, my perspective was just radically changing and I was realizing that some of the work that I'd done that took me maybe seven or eight years with mechanical means and grazing and you know overseeding, I could have done that in like a year and a half. If I had had the tool of fire and knew what its legality was, what its effects were, felt comfortable with it. So now I do have that tool and there's this, this feeling of endless opportunity because everywhere I look, it, it's needed. It's a really sad thing when you know what you're seeing. You know, you're like, oh shit, I can't unsee that. But at the same time, you're like, there's all this opportunity for huge improvement. And so what I've noticed is that people get attached to every single tree and the trees are beautiful and great, but there's a bigger story. A lot of them are really unhealthy because there's too many. They're too tight. It's just like if you've got a bunch of carrots, you know, you seed your carrots. If you don't thin those carrots, you know what you'll get. You'll get a bunch of tops and very little root. <laughs> Moisture is the overriding factor governing fuel flammability. It determines whether ignition will take place and to what extent the fuel type will be consumed. Available moisture in a given fuel type determines the best time of year for targeting it with a burn application. Actually, that's one of the interesting things in talking to a lot of different landowners is even this idea of like available fuel and not available fuel. People have a kind of an irrational fear of anything growing right now, like anything will burn. But in a wildfire, only certain things will burn. A live black oak is not going to burn. It's just full of water um, versus a stand of 20-year-old manzanita or a bunch of toyon. You know, it's got deadwood. It's got volatile oils inside of it. What I actually find is that most landowners don't know what they want. They want to be fire safe. But ecologically, there's a big gap. They don't really have an understanding of what's best for the forest and wildlife. And so essentially I'm telling them what I think would be good. I want to see more life, more diversity, fire resilience, and ultimately a resource, because there's all sorts of resources from the land. You have to start with looking at the landscape through fire. Now that I'm getting out on all these properties, that's how I advise people. So really kind of like conveying the process of like, how would this land be being like exercised? Because it's not at all right now. There's no process of natural selection, I mean, Yes, there's drought. This large snowstorm we got was really interesting earlier in the year. All the trees that are too close together and getting leggy, they were all snapping because they hadn't been tested. They're just reaching for that light. Tim says climate change is another factor that's making farming more difficult and all the more reason to pay attention to natural site constraints. I think more and more it's gonna be all about people really identifying the features of their site. And really this whole idea of, of pushing against your site, you know, I think really identifying what's your site going to be best at growing and developing your market plan around that uh, makes a lot of sense. Although the goats did a decent job at reducing most of the brush, 
To Tim, there seemed to be a lot of fuel left behind. And so that's where the fire really emerged as a necessary process in addition. And so the fire and the grazing are two of these services that we're offering now. Before Tim was using fire as a tool, he was responding to it as a threat on the farm. I think it was 2015. It was a blazing hot early summer. And uh, we actually had a fire start on the farm in the back 20. One of the employees smelled it or saw the smoke and went back there on the ATV and came rushing out and being like, fire, fire, fire. And so, yeah, that was my first experience with fire directly on the property here. And it ended up being that we called the fire department while the rest of us went back there with buckets, tools, and water, and more or less got it circled up right as basically the retardant dropped from above a couple loads. The retardant ended up dripping from the airplane over some of the fields. So our fruit just got covered in it. Luckily, you know, it didn't go anywhere. And then, of course, just like most California farms, smoke season is a real thing. Um, but nothing like the last few years, um, where August was just brutal and dark and acrid. Yeah, there's a definite element of morale that goes down and just unhealthy work conditions. You know, you can put a mask on, but it's still like 100 degrees out and you're just like sweating your ass off and you're just like dripping smoke. <laughs> it just feels really gnarly. Protecting and supporting farmers during smoky conditions can be complicated. Agricultural employees aren't making a lot of money, and so working those days is like important to people. So you don't put the pressure on like, you gotta work today, but you can, I'll be out there, you know? But in some of those dark, dark days, it's just like people just go to the coast or something like that, get away for a few days. But as the owner, you're kind of like, that's not what you do. You just hunker down and like, do the minimum and just try and make it work. I mean, I think farmers are kind of gritty like that. You know, we, of course, can be ready to evacuate and make plans for that. Tim walked me through some of the experiments he's conducting on his farm, using fire and grazing together as a tool for restoration. What I've seen on my own land, where I have done burning, followed with animals, more than anywhere else is that a lot of it depends on how moist is that spot you know how sunny is it what are its soils like the combination of the burning and the and the livestock will depend on those factors a lot so for instance i've got an area along the creek that i burned this spring in like march we had to prep some areas to kind of rearrange the fuels so that our we weren't going to scorch the trees above them in, in open canopy areas, we were able to leave bigger bramble and just burn it as is. It did a beautiful job at getting rid of everything. And um, I overseeded some different forage blends for uh, the goats. I burned it, and that's great, but I didn't kill the blackberries. And my goal is not really to kill the blackberries. They actually represent a great resource for a lot of different wildlife and, and, um, and livestock. Um, the problem is when they go unmanaged, and they dominate the landscape. You no longer have access to an area. It represents a hell of a fire danger. Um, we need to manage it at appropriate levels. I asked him to share with me how he became comfortable with demonstrating and training others on prescribed burning methods. 
for me, it's really just started with my own burn piles. But then last November, went to a workshop with UCANR and um, the Fire Academy, they called it. A bunch of people who are presenting legal facts, what's allowed, what's not, when it's allowed. But then also just the basics on some fire behavior. Yeah, actually, classic Tim, that previous spring, I taught like a burn on like an acre and a half. <laughs> I hadn't even had any training, but we taught it to a bunch of high school kids who helped. And I was just like, it connected with me. I was like, holy shit, this, this is it. As soon as I realized that like, if we want to improve forage on land for livestock or wildlife, you have to have exposed soil. So literally you burn, it's like the best seed bed you could possibly make. You've got all this ash with like minerals in it. You see it over that, a rain comes and you can just see it in how green everything comes up. The workshop in November was crucial. That really like brought it all together. I think farmers are well poised to actually be broad landscape managers too, because what are the factors we're always dealing with? Moisture, soil type, vegetation, like it's all the same things. We're just adding in fire. And really it's like, you can look at all the burn plans and all the weather reports you want, um, and you should, but you've got to be able to synthesize on the ground day of what you got, you know, for burning. Through this experience, Tim has learned how important it is for land stewards to temper their expectations of restoration activities. How many decades has it been that this has been in the making? You're not going to restore it in one go. Whether that's mastication or burning or grazing or thinning, it's, it's not one thing that's going to be a one and done for sure. And it's probably a mixture of things. Tim elaborates on some of the important safety considerations necessary for a successful burn. From CAL FIRE standpoint, there's basically two different designations. There's kind of open burn season where no permits are required. That's not required for a pile burn or a broadcast burn. And then there's air quality control, which is dealing with air pollution. So they're the ones that determine if it's a burn day or not. CAL FIRE can determine if it's a red flag warning day. Mostly it's about wind, but it's also about being dry enough to actually have fire be a thing. And the liability for any fire, escape or otherwise, and the damages or disturbance it causes lies with the person that lights it. If you're burning for other people, um, there's two ways. You can light it yourself and be the one who's responsible, or you can have the landowner do it and trust that you're going to get their back. <laughs> with managing the fire. So I've opted more for doing it myself. Um, and the thing about all these burns is that you can roll up to a burn and decide not to do it. You're not committed in one form or another until you actually put the fire down. But that's where kind of starting small and getting some understanding of the factors really matters. These workshops, getting hands-on experience is super valuable. There's a lot of people think of wildfire, not controlled fire, and they're completely different. In addition to grazing and prescribed burning, Tim feels strongly that mechanical thinning is an important step for ecological land management and wildfire preparedness. We're thinning a lot of cedars out from underneath the oaks and the pines, 
and you cut one of these trees and you count the rings and you're like, whoa, this tree that was 68 inches in diameter was 80 years old. And you're like, okay, yes, this tree is carbon sequestering above the soil mostly, but what happens when it burns? It's not very stable. And so basically at the same time, this tree is growing so little it's pretty much slowly dying and then it will just be this completely available fuel and it will burn or it will get masticated and then it's shredded on the forest floor slowly decomposing slowly releasing carbon i think what most people don't realize and that is so important is that stable carbon is soil carbon Prescribed burns actually create more stable soil carbon through the charcoal that is left on top after a burn. And within the next rain, when the next herd of deer or goats come through, it's going to get broken up, pushed into the soil. It contributes to soil health. It's a purifier of water. So I think that when people think of a forest and plant a tree for the carbon, it's kind of not the full picture. Tim describes how these tools help maintain an open canopy and support diversity. You've got lots of places where the sun reaches the forest floor. So you've got a forested area and you've got open areas where you've got a whole diversity of species because the conditions are right. So that's what really offers the hope for the kind of mystery of the burning is what comes after. In Tim's eyes, there's still a lot more that the state and federal governments can do to support forest health projects in a way that sustains the magnitude of management work farmers and rural ag communities are facing. You can burn without heavy thinning, but I also think there's larger trees that need to come out. And so finding a place and a market for logging, I think that's, that's the fact. Those trees are gonna remove themselves, most likely, through fire, beetle kill, drought stress, but they also do represent a resource that is pretty sustainable if we're going to be, you know, continuing to kind of like feed society and build our infrastructure. So there needs to be uh, a market created for the smaller diameter thinning type stuff. Long-term investments in land management is cost prohibitive for many farmers. The funding is such a big deal. I mean, it's too much to ask the average individual landowner to foot the bill for full restoration of their land. And there's a new paradigm that's emerging now, which is like, people recognize the need. It doesn't mean they can do it though. You know, it's this thing called spring. It comes every year, <laughs> grows everything. It's horrible. <laughs> it's a fact of life, right? Tim's investments in the local neighborhood have grown into larger networks of people supporting each other in land management and fire preparedness. And yeah, looking out for kind of the greater good there. During that snowstorm, I had to go out and check on the goats. There's trees over the road. And there's like two or three neighbors out there and we're all cutting trees off. I'd never met those neighbors. And all of a sudden here we are like just, you know, all it took was just a little snowpocalypse to bring us together. But it felt really good. And um, I kind of see that with the grazing too. Um, and that same neighborhood is kind of part of the grazing program now. And they're like, hey, can we talk about you doing a burning in the same area? So it's bringing people together, you know, through land management. I tend to really give my time away 
which is fine. I enjoy that. Like, I just, you know, first one's free, yeah. Or, yeah, you know, you don't know what people's financial positions are. And when you tend to be kind of like mission driven, you know, it can be easy to kind of like give yourself away. <laughs> Especially because my mission is my neighborhood and my community. CAF is a nonprofit organization that has been helping small farmers across California with technical assistance and policy advocacy since 1978. If you're curious about things you learned in this episode, head over to our show notes at calf.org forward slash the farmers beat forward slash. That's B E E T, where we have links, resources, and photographs. Be sure to check out First Rain Farm on Instagram at First Rain Farm and share the episode with your friends. Also, follow us on Instagram at calf underscore fam farms to stay up to date on what new episodes are released and see more pictures from the farms featured in this podcast. This podcast project was funded by a grant from the American Red Cross. The Red Cross is a not-for-profit organization that depends on volunteers and the generosity of the American public to perform its mission. For more information, please visit redcross.org or cruzrojaamericana.org or visit them on Twitter at Red Cross. Are you a farmer interested in being on a future podcast or have a question related to this one? You can contact us at thefarmersbeat at calf.org. 